Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Uh, we'll be uh, looking at verses 16 to 20 this morning. Uh, welcome. My name is Matt Winquist. I'm one of the elders here at Wildwood and uh, the discipleship pastor on staff uh, here at Wildwood. I'm glad you're here. Um, before we get started, uh, as is, has been my normal custom, I would like you to pray uh, with me um, out loud. I'm asking you to pray out loud. I'll tell you this, the, uh, the youth at the Fairwood retreat that I just got back from did this very, very well and on the first try. Uh, and also the second try. So, um, like, they really outdo you guys. Um, we're going to do it a little bit different today because, um, uh, for sake of time, uh, I'm going to start praying right now, and I encourage you to pray out loud along with me. Maybe that'll help because there's some other loud noise going on, loud-ish noise going on in the room. But anyway, let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would give us strength and wisdom this morning. Uh, to understand your word, to understand who you are, that, Lord, uh, your name would be exalted and made mighty and awesome and glorious uh, because of what we say and what we uh, hear and understand. I pray that you would uh, give me strength to be able to make it through this sermon uh, physically. I feel weak this morning. I pray that you would uh, guide and direct in that way, that you would just give me the strength to, to endure, Lord, but also that you would help me communicate clearly that the people would understand uh, who you are, that we would um, that we would bow before you, and not just bow before you physically, but that we would actually do what your word says. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So we did. I did just get back from Camp Fairwood. It was a wonderful experience with the youth. They um, they responded well. Um, on one day, I challenged people, as I'm going to challenge you this morning, to take the gospel to the nations. Like, give your life to Jesus. Give him your yes. Be willing to take the gospel to the nations, to unreached people groups. And I didn't, I didn't, wasn't even able to count the number of people that looked up when I asked them to look up at me. Um, and there was probably at least 40 that looked up at me, a lot of them from our own church. On the last day, I asked, I asked for people who wanted to trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And at least 12 to 15, I didn't count again, looked up at me and, and prayed along with me a prayer uh, of salvation. And so it, I'm, I'm on a spiritual high right now. That's what's keeping me going. I've preached already four times since uh, Thursday, and so five and six this morning. But I'm excited because you get to hear very much the same thing um, that they did, just in a much smaller chunk. Um, apologize if I go a little bit long. I'm excited about this material, so just deal, okay? Um, <laughs> all right. So, as we're getting ready to think through uh, this passage, there's a story that was told once, and I'm, I'm hearing a little feedback up here, and I would imagine there aren't very many young people in here, but uh, I can definitely hear it. Now, Trent's not, he's younger than me, okay. All right. Um, anyway, here's a story of an ex-royal protection officer uh, who recounted the moment the queen bumped into two American tourists who somehow didn't recognize her. You may have heard this story at some point. It's made its uh, rounds around the interwebs. Uh, Richard Griffin, who was the aforementioned uh, protection officer, had accompanied the monarch on a picnic when they encountered the pair who were on a walking holiday. 
the queen would always stop and say hello. It was clear from the moment that they first stopped that they didn't recognize her, he told the Sky News. The queen would always, uh, the, the American man began telling the royal about his plans for the holiday and what the pair hoped to do next before asking where she lived. Mr. Griffin recalled, well, she said, well, I live in London, but I've got a holiday home just the other side of the hills. The tourist then asked the queen how long she'd been visiting the area, and she replied she had been doing so for over 80 years uh, since she was a little girl. Well, if you've been coming for 80 years, you must have met the queen, he asked, none the wiser. As quick as a flash, the queen admitted she hadn't, but added, Dickie here meets her regularly. Uh, this prompted the traveler to turn to Mr. Griffin, eager for an answer. Uh, she can be very cantankerous at times, but she's got a lovely sense of humor, Mr. Griffin said. Still oblivious to the fact that he was in the presence of royalty, the, the tourist threw his arms around the bodyguard and pushed his camera in the queen's hand, asking if she'd mind taking a photo for him. <laughs> <laughs> the queen obliged before she and her bodyguards waved goodbye to the Americans. Once the tourists were out of earshot, she turned to Mr. Griffin and said, I'd love to be a fly on the wall. Uh, when he shows those photographs to friends in America, hopefully someone tells them who I am. Um, and so it's a humorous story, but it teaches a spiritual truth, one that's very, very much at the heart of our passage today in Matthew chapter 28, 16 through 20. You know, the tourist would have acted different if he understood which person was the, the more important one, the royalty. And no matter what, think about it, no matter what your opinion of the current sitting president is, if you were in the, his presence, even as a human being, uh, you would not shove a camera in his face and ask to be taken, take pictures with his bodyguard. Um, you may not ask to take a picture with him, but you, you certainly wouldn't be disrespectful and, and rude and shove a camera in his face. Uh, you might shove a camera if you're of that kind of person into the bodyguard's hand and say, take a picture of me. But the same is true of Jesus, right? Like if you, if you, if you rightly understand who Jesus is, then you will, you will live your life in a much different way than if you don't understand who he is. Um, and that is, that is very much at the heart of what we're, we're looking at this morning. Um, so let's read our passage. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 28. We'll start in verse 16. I'll read all of it right now. Now the 11 disciples uh, went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when he saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now I realize Pastor Brian just preached this sermon like, I don't know, two months ago. Uh, it was his first, uh, uh, first message in our, our uh, value series. And um, I'm hoping, I had already planned on preaching this sermon because I had already had the content lined up for fall retreat and I needed to preach something very similar. And so, but I hope after today, uh, you see something new, that you understand Jesus to be more glorious. And so we're going to do it again. And, I, and Brian did a wonderful job. I agreed with everything he said. Um, but I think the Lord wants this for us. We need to get this. All right? So context.
was uh, worship was directed at Jesus by some women. Uh, the very first people to see Jesus alive uh, were women, and the very first people that Jesus sent to go tell people that he was alive were women. And, and they fell at his feet and worshiped him, and Jesus didn't say, no, no, don't, don't worship me, only worship God. He let them worship him. Uh, and so worship of the disciples is directed at Jesus here in verse 17. When they saw him, they worshiped him, uh, but some doubted. All right. Also, we have to understand this within the context of Jesus' ministry as a whole. What had Jesus just done? For, for three years, he had at least his 12 disciples following him around everywhere he went. Uh, we'll talk more about there's a larger number of disciples as well uh, that we see evidence of in the, in the Gospels in a little bit. But... Twelve people, twelve men, saw everything he did, heard everything he taught, saw the miracles, saw all the amazing things that he did, and, and, and came to understand who Jesus was. And now Jesus is telling them, I want you to go and make disciples as I have done for you. So that is a context of Jesus' ministry as a whole. So this passage that we're looking at today tells us what Jesus expects out of his disciples. And in doing so, he defines the process, gives us the expected outcome, and tells us how we're being able to do it. Uh, we're going to look at all those things. There's, there's several things that are true of disciples. Disciples are followers of Jesus, and we're going to look at those several things this morning. In order to do that, um, I have a video that um, I'm going to have Beth queue up for you in a second here. Um, and it has, there's nothing in it. There's no Bible verses. It's not made by Christians. Uh, they're probably evolutionists, actually, I would have guessed. Um, but... I want you to, to watch this video, and ultimately we're going to make the point with this video uh, that Jesus is awesome, okay? We're, we're going to make that point. It's not going to seem, maybe might not seem clear to you at first. Uh, it's a, a size comparison of celestial bodies. But I want you to think, how do you feel as you watch the size comparison happen? How does it make you feel, and what does it make you think of God? All right. Thanks, Beth.
So how do you feel right now? Pretty small, right? Um, you just keep thinking, when is this going to stop? Like, uh, you only got to like the first giant star, and all of a sudden, Earth was less than a pixel on the screen. And it happened over and over and over and over again. And, and here's the thing. And we're going to connect this to Jesus. But first, we have, in order to do that, we have to start in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So all that we just saw there on that screen, and we're just talking about one part of his creation, all that we just saw there, God created that. How did he create that? Genesis 1, 14 to 16 tells us this, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heaven to separate day from night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. All right? And God cre- it says God created it, and it says how he did it. How did God do that? He spoke. Just his words created that. How powerful of a being do you have to be in order to just speak and have that happen? Like, I can't even speak a tennis ball into existence, and yet God can, can do all that, right? It's ridiculous to think that there isn't a creator. And it's even more ridiculous to think that our creator is a puny little God. He's not. He's amazingly powerful. Nehemiah 9.6 says this, You are the Lord, you alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, the host of heaven worships you. And so not only, not only is God powerful enough to do that, obviously it leads us to a place where we must worship him because of how powerful he is. And not only did he speak it into existence, but I want you to notice something that Nehemiah 9.6 says, and you preserve all of them, right? Speaking of tennis balls, like I can juggle a little bit. Like I can do three balls, maybe like 10 seconds if I'm lucky before it all uh, goes awry. And, uh, but God created all of that. And can you imagine like if any of those stars like crash into each other, the terrible mess that it would make, let alone there's hundreds of trillions of stars. We don't even know how many. The universe is 93, the observable universe is 93 billion light years. It's like 9.46 trillion kilometers for every light year. That's insane. And yet it says here that God preserves all of that. Like, all the time. He's been, ever the 6,000 years ago, he created the universe, and he's never dropped it once. That is an incredible God that we serve. Okay, I told you we're going to connect it to Jesus. Here we go. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. All right, so we, right in here, I want you to see that there was a word in the beginning, the word was with God, the word was God. This word person is the same as God, and he was also with God. And we see from these verses that that word spoke creation into existence. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so this word became flesh. And so John 1 connects this word to Jesus. 
Jesus, the one who became man in eternity past, created this, spoke the universe into existence. It's that God that we serve. It's this Jesus who spoke the words in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. What's even more amazing is the God who designed all of that when man, so here's the thing. He created man to be perfect and, and told man, you can eat of any tree in the garden except for this one over here. And notice, this, he's also using his words here. The same words that spoke creation into existence spoke to Adam and Eve and said, don't do this. You can do all of this, just don't do this over here. And what did man ultimately decide? I'm going to do what God said not to do. That's a, I mean, that's a crazy thing to think that God would do. But remember how small you feel? Like how easy would it have been for God to say, well, that little puny part of my creation over there, squish, toss it out, and I'm going to start over with someone who actually listen to me. But that's not what he did. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. From the very beginning, God told Adam and Eve, if you do this, you will die. And they did it, and they died. And the solution and the reason why they die is because of their sin. The reason why we die is because of our sin. Now we're born in sin because that was passed down from Adam and Eve. And not only were we born in sin, but we also choose it. We willingly choose to sin. And yet instead of starting over, God sent his son, fully God, the one who created the universe, came and died for your sin and for mine. That is the context of Matthew chapter 28, 16 through 20. That is the God that created, that is the God who spoke this. And uh, in the Gospels, and especially Matthew, worship is directed at Jesus eight times that I found. There may be more. And, and Jesus never corrects. He never corrects them when, when people worship him. Every time they do, he just lets them do it. Um, and, and we know that Jesus knows that only uh, worship is only to be directed at God because when he was tempted by Satan, he told Satan, get away from me. You should worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And yet Jesus receives worship, so we know that he knows that he is God as well. And so what do I want you to get? The main point I want you to get today, if nothing else, is God is awesome and Jesus is God. That means Jesus is awesome. And whatever Jesus says, we want to listen to. Now, I've told this illustration uh, in the past. It was a long time ago. I would venture to guess the grand majority of you are new, so I'm going to tell it again. Um, well, I used to live in Las Vegas, and uh, we, we planted churches out there for a couple years. And I got a, uh, a, a membership at the time at Gold's Gym. And uh, I loved that gym because, um, well, the, the introductory offer was free child care. And so I had two littles at the time, and I was a stay-at-home dad. Uh, as well, and so I would go there for like two hours almost every day, and just let them watch my kids. Um, so I would, I would, I would lift weights, and um, I was in pretty good shape at the time. And so, and then I would, I would go and I'd sit in a sauna afterwards. And um, and so 
you know, when I would undress and get ready to go in the sauna and I'd walk past the mirror and I'd be feeling pretty swole looking at myself. And uh, then I'd go sit in the sauna and sweat for a while. Well, I don't know if you know who uh, Jay Cutler is. Not Jay Cutler, Jay Cutler. Jay Cutler is uh, Mr. Olympia, four-time Mr. Olympia. Massively huge dude. I'm taller than him. That's all I've got. Uh, but but uh, his, his face was like murals all over this gym because either I had part ownership or he was just really famous. I'm not sure. But anyway, I'm the only person in the sauna. Jay Cutler walks into the sauna. And, uh, and I was like, oh, man, I, I feel tiny now. Um, but... Um, Anyway, he had, there's, a, there's a heating element in the sauna, and it, it, sometimes heating elements have, are you know, f- actual fire and hot rocks and stuff like that. But this one's electric, and he's got a water bottle, and he's like, oh, you mind if I pour some water on this heater? And I'm in my, like, in my mind, I didn't say this out loud, but in my mind, I'm like, no, Jay, that's a terrible idea. Water and electricity don't mix. That's, that's nuts. Uh, definitely don't touch me if you're going to do that. Um, but what actually came out of my mouth was, that's cool, Jay. Do whatever you want. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't going to tell Jay no at this point because he could crack my skull between his biceps. So, I mean, so, but the reason why I felt that way was because of, like, how awesome he was in comparison to me. But that's just a man. That's a another puny man in comparison to God. And, and here we have Jesus who is unbelievable, like infinitely awesome. We don't even know, the, we can't even imagine the extent of his awesomeness. And here in this passage he says, go and make disciples of all nations. Um, and ultimately the point we want to get to this is a disciple, a disciple worships Jesus. Disciples first and foremost worship Jesus because of who he is. And what that leads to is a disciple submits to the authority of Jesus. That's the logical conclusion. You, you submit to the authority of Jesus if you're a disciple. Where do we see this in the scriptures? There's a few, few places I'd like to point you. Matthew chapter 9, verses 2 through, two, 2 through 8 says this. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and he went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, is what that passage is about. If you have sinned, and you have, so have I. Since we have sinned, we need somebody that has the authority to forgive sins so that we don't die eternally and spend eternity in hell, because that is the punishment for sin. And Jesus stepped out of, his, out of heaven and did just that for us. He died, and he has the, forgiveness, has the power to forgive sins. Which is easier? That's a good question that Jesus asked. Which is actually easier? Is it easier to heal somebody who cannot walk and probably couldn't since birth? Or is it easier to forgive sins? Um, For a long time, I think I thought, well, obviously healing somebody is... No. Forgiving sins is much harder because there's only one person that can... There's really only one person that can 
in and of himself heal a paralytic as well. But that just goes to point to something even much greater. And that is Jesus can forgive you of your sins and you can spend eternity with him even though you are a sinner. And that is an amazing truth. Jesus has the authority to do that. Jesus also has authority in John 10, 17 to 18. It says this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. All right. Now, do you have the authority to lay down your life? If you wanted to give it up for something, do you actually have the authority to do that? The answer is yes. We can all choose to give up our life for something. And in this sermon, I am going to ask you to give up your life for something. And that something is Jesus. But you don't have, and neither do I, the authority to take it up again. I cannot rise from the dead if I choose to give up my life and it's taken. I will stay dead. The only person that has authority to take up his own life is Jesus, the Son of God. And because he has authority and because he did actually take up his life again, he has the authority to raise you from the dead as well, which means you need to trust him that he can do it. John chapter 17, verses 1 to 5 says, Then when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus also has the authority to give eternal life because he rose from the dead. And so you need Jesus, and if you have Jesus, this should be the greatest news ever about the most glorious being ever, and it should inspire you to want and go and make sure that everybody knows that this can actually happen. We have a message of hope that only Jesus can provide, and he asks us to do it. The right response to Jesus' authority is to submit to him as though we are his servant, because that is what we are. Matthew chapter 8, 5 through 10 illustrates this. A story about Jesus. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority. With soldiers under me and I say to him, go and he goes and to another come and he comes and to my servant do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who follow him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. That's amazing. Like, this, we're talking about a Roman centurion. There's, there's constantly Jewish religious leaders and officials who know the scriptures, much of it by heart, and yet they don't recognize who Jesus is, and they definitely, definitely don't recognize him as authority. They, they, they don't even really recognize him as a peer. And yet... Here, a Roman centurion, who everyone loves to hate, well, actually, they like this guy. They, told, they actually told Jesus he's worthy of this. But um, a Roman centurion, nonetheless, Jesus marveled at his faith. The Roman centurion, basically, who definitely would have been a superior to Jesus politically, was telling Jesus, I'm your servant. You tell me what to do, and I'm going to do it. 
A Roman centurion recognized that before many of his followers. And, and it says that Jesus, Jesus, the creator of the universe, marveled at his faith. He marveled at his faith. That's an amazing thing. And I, guess what? 2,000 years after Jesus is actually present, when you believe in Jesus, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus, when you obey him, Jesus marvels at your faith too. I believe that is true. Uh, so, a disciple, a disciple does what Jesus commands. That's our next point. A disciple does what Jesus commands and does what Jesus did. And we follow his example in investing in people. Uh, and ultimately, that leads to making disciples. Matthew 28, 19 says, Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. All right? In that, in that uh, sentence in the English, there's four, four verbs. Um, only one of them is an actual verb. Uh, the other three are half verb, half noun. Um, one of them is a, in the command form, and it's not go. It's make disciples. Make disciples is the command that Jesus is giving. Going, baptizing, teaching are all supporting the main command. Make disciples. All of them are necessary to make disciples. All of them have the force of the command. But the command is make disciples. And, and, and so we want to follow Jesus' example because that's what he did. He took 12 men and he made disciples out of them, 11 of them anyway. Um, and, and we also see him in Luke chapter 10, verse 1. There's 72 disciples that he sends out at one point. And in John chapter 6, verses 60 to 69, it talks about large numbers of disciples who actually left Jesus, which means he had great numbers of disciples, probably even still had great numbers of disciples. In Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, it's, it's I think, a really significant passage that often gets overlooked, that women were disciples of Jesus. There were women that followed Jesus everywhere he went, that he had healed them of either infirmities or cast out demons or whatever, and they followed him everywhere. They attended to his needs. And it says, and named several of them, but then it says, and many more. Uh, discipleship isn't just for men. It's for women, too. And, and Jesus actually, some, many times, at the risk of his own um, reputation, specifically and intentionally ministered to women, even though the people around him uh, thought that it wasn't a good idea. Jesus cares about women, and Jesus wants women to be disciples, too. Uh, so the question then becomes, like, that's, what, that's the activity. Jesus invites people into disciple and relationship. What is a disciple? Also, what isn't a disciple? And how do you know you are actually a disciple of Jesus? Well, the first thing that, the first limiting factor anyway, or the first way you know that you are actually a disciple is uh, belief. A disciple believes in Jesus. That's the baseline thing for discipleship. John 3, 16 to 18 gives us both these. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life, you're a disciple of Jesus because you believed. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus if you are condemned. Uh, you can't lead people to Jesus if you don't believe in Jesus yourself. It's pretty simple, right? Uh, does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Disciples believe in Jesus. 
Second disciple recognizes their own sin. This is found in Luke chapter 6, verses 38 to 42, where it says, He told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. A disciple recognizes their own sin. And for the longest, this, this passage actually hit me differently within the last week in my own personal quiet time. I, I always skipped over verse 40 in my mind. Like I read it, but skipped over it. I didn't recognize the connection to discipleship. It actually says a disciple is not above his teacher. And so someone said it didn't make sense because part of the story, the first part of the story talks about, um, uh, you know, blind men not being able to lead blind men. And then the second part of the story also has to deal with blindness. You have a log in your eye. Obviously, you're blind. If you had a log in your eye, you couldn't see. So both sides of those story have to do with blindness. Being a, disi- being a disciple requires that you're not blind to your own sin. And I don't, and, I, and for the longest time I thought, this passage meant, and, and it still has possibly this interpretation, but for the longest time I thought that, that this passage meant that I have to deal with areas of sin in my life in order to be able to help other people who have that same area of sin in my life. And you can still get there, I think, with this passage. However, I don't think that's Jesus' main point here now. This is not his main point. His main point is if you don't understand that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, if, in other words, you're not saved, you're still walking in darkness. Whenever Jesus talks about blindness and darkness in the, in the Gospels, he's talking about somebody who doesn't know who he is. And so what do blind people do when they're leading other blind people? What is the inevitable result? They're going to lead them to the place that they're going, wherever that is. And blind people in the Gospel are going to hell. So you cannot be a disciple if you don't recognize that you're a sinner in need of a Savior as well. But when you do recognize that you're a sinner in need of the Savior and God's light and life, the light of Jesus comes into your life, guess what? You're like, oh man, this is so amazing. I don't get, I don't get what I deserve for my sin. You can come along with me too. And you can lead people not into a pit of hell, but to Jesus who is life. A disciple recognizes their own sin. Uh, Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 33, it tells us that a disciple values Jesus above all else. It says this, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all he has cannot be my disciple. That's a, I mean, I can really sit with you a little bit. Wow. Like, I got to give up. Everything is Jesus' point. Is Jesus' point here that you actually have to dishonor your mother. 
Is, is, is his point that you, you should kill yourself? I mean, you have to give up your life. Is his point that you should hate your chil- actually hate your children? No. His point, or even give up everything you have. That if you're a wealthy person, and most of us by the world standards are wealthy, that you have to give all of that up. No, that is not Jesus' point. And there's much in Scripture to tell us that's not his point because Jesus inspired all of it. What his point is, is you have to value Jesus above all else. If you're your wife or your father or your mother, your children or your possessions steer you away from obeying Jesus' commands, then you need to say, I'm sorry, mom and dad. I'm sorry, spouse. I'm sorry, children. I'm going to follow Jesus because Jesus created the earth and Jesus died for my sins and everybody needs to know that and it doesn't matter whether or not you like that. Um, that is point. Jesus wants a disciple to value him above all else. Now, what is the target audience for making disciples? What's the end game? All right. In, in our passage here, it says um, that make disciples of what? All nations. All people groups. Um, we've, it's, it's widely debated, but we think there's somewhere around 7,200, 7,300 people groups left in, in the world that have never heard the name of Jesus, have zero access to the gospel. And, and Jesus is saying that the gospel, that you need to make disciples of them, all nations. Um, and so, you know, to illustrate that, there's, uh, you, can, you can get excited about the game being over when it's not really over. And the game's not over in terms of making disciples. There's a lot of work left to be done. Uh, about a week ago, uh, not a week, uh, closer to a month ago, uh, we were playing. Uh, my my daughter plays volleyball on, on JV for UT, and we were playing Geneseo. And um, we'd split the first two games, and you only go to three games in Illinois. It's a stupid rule, but um, we, <laughs> I don't know, it makes a lot of dumb rules. And, um, and so, um, but anyway. Normally, when you play conference, you go to 25 in the third game, um, and you go to 15 if it's non-conference. In my mind, I thought Geneseo was non-conference. I don't know why. But so we're in the third game. It's 12 to 14, or 14 to 12, we're up. And I'm like, we just got to win this point. And so um, playing, and then Noel, my daughter, comes up and just like blows up a ball, and we get to 15 points, and I jump up and like, whoo! let's go and everybody else is like and I'm like we just won what's going on here and then they take the ball and they serve again and I sit down and I'm like oh uh, it's not over alright and ultimately uh, Jenna CEO ended up winning good job Erica Cotty she's not in the service but she uh, we'll be in the next service. They got the best of us and actually finished the game. That's the end game is 25 points, and they got to 25 before we did. It doesn't matter that we can say, oh, we got to 15 before you did. <laughs> right? The same thing is true in the, in the Christian life when Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations, and, and, and we're happy just to sit here and be us four and no more shut the door. That's not the end game. The end game is make disciples of all nations. There are billions of people dying without knowing the name of Jesus. And the awesome Jesus, the glorious Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations. And we should submit to his authority. 
Here's what the end game is. There are, this, this is found all over scriptures. I'm just going to give you Genesis and Revelation. All right? uh, I've read dozens, a couple dozen scripture passages that have these, this theme in it. Genesis 18, 18. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great nation and mighty nation and all nations of the earth shall be blessed by him. Genesis 22, 18. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. In Genesis 26, 4, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and will give your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. This is found in Genesis. Genesis through Revelation talks about how God's heart is for the nations. His glory is at stake. All right? God is glorified when he redeems his people and God, is, and God can only be glorified and God is glorious no matter whether or not we glorify him. But God chooses to use you to bring his name to the nations. Genesis of Revelation, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Genesis, or Revelation 7, 9 through 10 says, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God's heart is for the nations from the beginning of the Bible to the end. And he calls you to take the gospel to the nations. And I want you to notice that it says from every tribe and language and people and nation. Does every tribe, people, and nation on the earth right now have access to the gospel? No. Is there somebody from every tribe, tongue, and language that will be able to stand before the Lord? That's talking about future. That's John seeing something in the future. Will they be there? They will, but not, the, not right now. Jesus, I don't believe, is going to come back right now because there are more people that still need to hear the name of Jesus. More on that in a second. There's a few questions that need to be answered as we close here. What is God's strategy for making his name great among the nations? What is the strategy? His strategy is you and me. That's his strategy. Um, and you might ask yourself, how could God possibly use me to take the gospel to the nations? Uh, that's a valid question. It's one that I've asked myself as well. When I was a kid, for the longest, I felt called to be in the ministry from the time I was about 10 years old. I was saved when I was five. I started feeling like God wanted me to use, serve him full time. And, but the problem was that I, I did not talk in front of people. Like that was a, that was a, that was a no-go for me. Um, and actually, Camp Fairwood was uh, instrumental, where we just came back from was instrumental in changing the direction of my life. I, I applied to be on ground staff there, and all they want to do was mow lawns and take out trash and keep up the grounds, uh, ride a tractor. That was my idea of what a good summer looked like. But um, I got hired, and then they told me, you're going to teach archery. And I was like, what? So, well, I learned how to teach archery, and it was pretty simple. I wasn't like sharing the gospel or anything, but for like eight weeks of the summer, I learned how to talk in front of people and actually realized, hey, I'm a pretty good teacher. I can actually do this. And something that was hard for me became a little easier. 
And over time, God used a lot of different things like that to push me in the direction of, well, here I am. I'm speaking in front of people, and I feel called to it. I actually enjoy it now. I want to do it. I have a passion for it. Listen, if God can use me, he can use you. And there was also a time where, uh, you know, around the time I was 10, one of the reasons I started feeling called to God is because we had missions conferences at our church. And I heard that, you know, I'm supposed to to proclaim the gospel in the nations. And there was this, this song that was sung on a regular basis that, uh, or at, at most of our mission conferences, maybe you've heard of it. I don't know the whole line, but I know part of it was, please don't send me to Africa. Now, that wasn't the point of the song. Of Ultimately, we get to the point where um, actually what we're supposed to do is go wherever God wants us to go. But I was literally praying that. God, please don't send me to Africa. I don't want to go there. But guess what? God has sent me to Africa. I've preached the gospel in Rwanda. I've preached the gospel in Kenya. And I've preached the gospel in Ethiopia. And, and people have come to know Jesus because of somebody who didn't even want to go. Um, and he can send you too. He can change your heart too. Um, his other strategy isn't just you. Obviously, you can't do it alone. At the very end of our passage here, it says, and I will be with you always to the end of the earth. And now I look back at my life and saying no to God and him just saying, nope, I've got something better for you. He was with me always. I wouldn't have done this if it wasn't for me. And so the question is, is he in you? Do you have Jesus in your heart? Why did Jesus leave us here to make disciples? You ever thought about that? Why did, why did, he, why did he entrust it to us? I mean, he's still alive. Like he rose from the dead. He's alive physically. He's already have a proven track record. 11 out of 12 ain't bad, right? He did a really good job, and those people changed the world. Let's just say Jesus, every three years, went to a different people group. He already knows their language. He's God, right? He could have made 11 disciples everywhere he went over the last 2,000 years. He could have done the job by himself by now, you think? Um, And yet, what did he do? He chose to do it through you and me. And that means, and why does he do that? It's because God is most glorified when his people listen and do what he says and make his name glorious among the nations. That is how God, God is not most glorified when he forces glory. It's when he chooses to put that in your hands and take his name to the nations. When is the job done? Matthew 24, 14 says this, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Like, us actually getting on board with this means that the end will come, and we want the end to come. Revelation 22 tells us we want the end to come. It is a place that we want to be, in the presence of Jesus. We want the end to come, and you actually get the opportunity to hasten that day by doing what Jesus tells you to do. How can you, does everyone actually need to go? Like, we're like, oh, let's go, and now we all just leave. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense, right? But each of us has a part as the body of Christ in taking the gospel of the nations. But the hardest piece of that, and the one that I'm asking you to consider, it's not too late, no matter how old you are, is will you be willing, will you give God your yes and say, I am willing, Lord, make a way. 
I will take the gospel to the nations, to unreached people groups. That is a hard ask. At Wildwood, we say every member of missionary across the street and around the world, and we do that because of this passage. Uh, we, want, we, want, we want to send 50 of our own people in the next 25 years to unreached people groups. That's a tall order. God can do it. And I want to ask you to consider that. A number of our youth, I, I asked them that this weekend, and, and not just from our church, but a lot of kids from our church, when I asked them to look up at me, said, yes, I will go, all right? This isn't just for youth. Youth are ready to go, are you? All right, what are your next steps, all right? Next steps, if you don't already have a relationship with Jesus, you need to become a disciple. You need to become a follower. How do you become a follower? By believing in Jesus. Uh, that's how you become a disciple. But a disciple makes disciples. Um, and so how do you make a disciple? We have at least the beginning process of that here at Wildwood. We have a, a discipleship process that, w- that we use. They're called triads. You can get in a triad. Uh, you, can, you can lead one if you're a mature believer. Come talk to me about that. I'd be happy to explain more as for women with women and men with men. Uh, it doesn't matter who you are, you can be in one or lead one. Uh, you can take the gospel to the nations. If, if, you, if, you're, if you're willing right now to give God your yes, I want you to go talk to Pastor Andy. We, we, he started to put together a lot of resources to help people get to the place where they can actually take the gospel to the nations. It's not going to be tomorrow. We need to work towards it. And so go talk to Pastor Andy. Don't let discipleship stop with personal knowledge of the Savior. Right, it's not enough. In fact, I don't know that if we really, really realize who Jesus is or understand who he is or what he's done for us if we don't want to go and bring the gospel to the nations because he is that awesome. Um, as the worship team returns, uh, let us uh, close in prayer. Father, I thank you, for, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are uh, glorious and awesome and uh, beyond measure, beyond comprehension, and, and that in your, in your amazing pleasure, in your goodwill, you sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins instead of uh, allowing us to die in our sins, or instead of destroying us altogether. Thank you, for, uh, thank you for the opportunity to take your word and your gospel to the nations. Um, I pray that, that we would be willing, that we would be disciples who worship you, who submit to your authority, and who do what you say, Lord, and that you would use us uh, to bring the gospel, that you would use us to hasten the coming of the Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040 If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.